לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. ברשה This is an amazing Parsha, as all of our Parsha are amazing. We're also going to talk about Shabbat Zachor. Shabbat Zachor is this week because next week, as we all know, Purim is coming. Purim is coming Thursday evening, and we are excited about Purim coming. It's also the first anniversary of our lockdown, so we don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about Truma. Truma starts out with this invitation, an invitation for a donation. It seems as if we're always raising money. Where to begin with this? Are we oriented towards the donation part? Where did the people get? What are the problems associated with this, this process? Why are they making this, this um, sanctuary? And now that the Torah is focusing on the construction of a sanctuary, how can we... Get excited about this. You want to take this on? Jeremy, you're involved in a fundraising campaign right now in your shul. I am. I am. Um, I'm not, you know, I used to record these in my office. Uh, and uh, and the office is like empty at the moment. Uh, we, we're, we're actually just going to get started with some demolition in just a few more days. And then we're going to start construction. It's going to take a long time. Uh, I have a hundred-year-old building and we're trying to... to I can give you the whole, the whole, the whole speech. You want to hear the whole speech? No, but you don't have to hear the whole speech. But we're gonna, we're going to uh, give the building a facelift so it can be ready for a Jewish community for an additional hundred years. Look, you know, we went through this experience a dozen years ago, to you know, more than a dozen years ago after our fire, and the 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 focus on creating sacred space obviously is so so important within Judaism. And maybe if we take that idea and. channel it back into the to the uh, B'nai Yisrael experience in the Midbar. What do they want out of this yeah. space? So Sorry, what, what do they know, want? Heschel, Heschel, Abraham Josh Heschel in, in the Sabbath, of course, you know, just a, a brilliant kind of lyrical meditation on Shabbat, um, uh, you know, consistently wanted to say that we're not a religion of sacred space, we're a religion of sacred time. You know, the, the Christendom built those massive cathedrals and And Islam built you know wonderful mosques and we don't really have them we have we we don't have uh you know you, you can dive in anywhere you can dive in you can dive in outside you can dive in a shtibu in a small well, lucky for us our temples were destroyed lucky for us <laughs> but uh, but it isn't it's certainly not the whole truth uh, and in fact the physical space of um, of you know a community's dedication is shapes its experience the, the sages for example have a wonderful comment um, 
that you shouldn't pray in a room without windows. Um, you, you know, lots of rooms can cover the tefillah necessities, but you also have to wonder like how light it is and, and what does it change when it is luminous? What does it change when you can uh, see the outside world? So our, our um, Parsha here in Truma and the succe- succeeding one in Tzavah and then for much of uh, the, the succeeding three, Kitsisa, uh, Vayakhel, and Pekudeh, in, in Truma and Tzavah, they describe what you should do. In Vayakhel and Pekudeh, they do it. Yeah. So those might be a little harder Parsha for us to talk about. Um, but the, the point is to create a space that is dedicated to the encounter with God. Uh, well, Barry, Barry, I know we'll say a little bit more about the phrase, uh, I, I have a slightly different interpretation than, than he does about the grammar of the, of the phrase. Well, not slightly, a different, different d- 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 uh, sense of the grammar of the phrase. But the point is that there is going to be a divine presence that thanks to the physical space that you dedicate to sacred purpose. Um, it's got a kiddushah. And you can't, you know, you can't treat it like you do the hardware store. You can't treat it like you do, you know, any old place. Uh, when communities and people dedicate something to a sacred purpose, and it is as beautiful as they can make it, it is as colorful as they can make it, as luminous as they can make it, and you lavish attention on all of its details, it's a work of art. It's a work uh, of art, and it shapes your whole experience. It shapes your religious experience. Look, there, there's what to be said for the aesthetic in the religious experience. And to a certain extent, we, you know, the, the uh, further we get from those classical, you know, structures and architecture, and your building, you know, in its day was was remarkable, was, was just a beautiful, beautiful, obviously it, it needs its upgrades and, and facelifts, but it represented something as all buildings do, they represent a certain kind of narrative, a certain kind of statement. And, and here the narrative of, the Mishkan is Vasuli Mikdash Shachanti Betocham. It says, You shall make, or they shall make for me a sanctuary, and I shall dwell among them. Not I shall dwell in it, God said, I shall dwell among them. So the narrative of the sanctuary is of proximity. Really, it's the narrative of relationship. But Barry, I want you to you know, elaborate on that. Just take a step back and recall for a moment where we've been. So a couple of parts ago, we were up at Mount Sinai for the great event of. Jewish history, shall we say, the revelation at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai, the way it's described in the in the Parsha Yitro, has an echo in the Mishkan, which is unfolding in the Parsha, as Jeremy mentioned. And that is eventually going to become crystallized in the temple, which will be built by Shlomo. So the Mishkan has a particular role in the life of the people because it's an attempt to take the Sinai experience with us. And when we think of Sinai, we think of Asada Debrot, the revelation, but Sinai actually is a mountain. You can't take a mountain with you. Um, And you cannot take a temple with you either. The Mishkan, however, is a portable structure which can be centered in the people. And that is what gives the punch, I think, to the, the verse, because God is going to dwell among the people because the Mishkan's location is precisely in the center of the people, wherever they are. The way the camp is constructed is the tribes are surrounding three on each side. The Levites are in the middle. And in the middle of the middle 
is the is the Mishkan. And at the precise center of the Mishkan is going to be, or the, uh, the, the holy section is going to be the, the Holy of Holies and the Ark. Um, I think that it's a powerful image for us because we are used to buildings to think of time as being the essential ingredient. And we identify, I think, God, not, not just Shabbat, as Rabbi Heschel observed, but I think we identify God more with time than with space, even though we know that we are rooted in space as well. The, the space is a rectangle, best described as a rectangle. At the center, of it's, the, the rectangle can be dissected into two squares. At the center of one square is the Holy of Holies, and at the center of the other square is going to be the Mizbeach. And so we have a narrative going on in this rectangle where the people reach out to God through the Mizbech, the altar, and God reaches to the people in the Holy of Holies, uh, really above the Ark of the Covenant. So let's go to the Aaron. This is a unique feature of this Mishkan, that the center of the Mishkan would be uh, the, this Holy of Holies, in the Holy of Holies would be the Ark of the Covenant, and in the Ark of the Covenant would be what uh, the Torah calls the Edut, which we think of as the commandments, the tablets. And then uh, take us next into the next, the Noarati Lecha Sham. Jeremy, uh, you're nodding here. So, so this is, this is mystical, this is beautiful, this is encounter. This is it, this is the... Uh, um the to me this is the core verse uh in the in the construction of mishkan so i i invite all of our listeners and 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 viewers to conjure up in your mind um the the very good image from raiders of the lost ark because the uh the image that has the two you know winged crew beam facing each other um there there we go that's quite we can't quite see it but uh so but you, you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Yeah. So you got the you got the crew beam given the given the, the dab, and and they are um, in their wings, they form a throne. Um, later on in, in the description of Shlomo's temple, not the tabernacle, the crew beam seemed to be described as something like a statue that covers over, and uh, and in this space in the seat of the Kruvim, and, and, and God is called, you know, Adonai Tzvot Yoshev HaKruvim, the one who sits on the cherubs, um, is an empty space. This is the challenge of creating a space for the non-physical God, okay? Um, the non-physical God, we do have, uh, as, as, as Barry said, um, a, a, an association with space because God's not a statue, and God's not made out of wood and stone, and and in fact, the biblical religion is about focusing on uh, what you cannot see. And, and of course, this echoes through, through later Judaism. We are called to relate to God as an abstraction, not something tangible. And that's like, you know, it can be spiritual hard work, especially you can imagine over the centuries that was spiritual hard work. But in the tabernacle, on that, on that throne, there is a kind of an empty space. And there, v'no'arti l'chasham v'dibarti, I will meet you there, I will speak to you, mi ben ha'kruvim. And to create the possibility of connection, this 
is what the tabernacle is uh, is all about. It's very a, a watchful element to the Kruvim. They are, in a sense, on guard, but they're also waiting for God to appear. God appears in the image from uh, the original revelation to Moshe, yeah, sure, yeah. Whenever God wants to appear, he is there, and the Kruvim are there, ever waiting. And it reminds me, in the sense of the night of the Pesach in Mitzrayim, which was a Leel Shimurim. It was also a night of watching. And we translate that moment of watching from the night of Pesach into this ever-watching arc of our meeting place of God. But what's fascinating is that the contents of the ark is the covenant, the edut, the testimony of the covenant. It's, and it's not a, 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 ref, a, a, a representation of God, obviously, since God cannot be represented. The only way that God, the word of God can be represented is in the, in the tablets, in the, in, the, in the covenant. And for a long time, I've thought that, that the reason why we have two tablets is not because the first five commandments are on tablet one and the second five are on tablet two. It's because they're actually two copies of the 10 and that um, one of them belongs to God and one of them belongs to the people and that they're both enclosed in the safety deposit box of the people, which is also God's safety deposit box. In other words, we have a mutuality to it. I think, uh, you know, I've been focusing on this, this, the theme, which is the central theme of, of the book of Exodus and the me of the Torah. It's relationship. This is a relationship. And what we're trying to do is demonstrate the proximity of the parties in this relationship in the, in the best way possible or in the way that, that we understand. And that's in space. You know, our ancestors didn't have such an elaborate library that we do. We now have the library and we have the ability to discuss and to study and to review, etc. All they had was, evidently they had gold and silver and all sorts of things too, but they, they created and fashioned space of it. So in this, the, we have the Aron, we have the Shulchan, lots of different implements. We have the Menorah, we have the Mishkan itself, the Krashim, different kinds of things. Just take a second, you know, and again, the synagogue plays, the modern synagogue plays with all of these things. We we want to see reflections of the desert sanctuary in our present Mishkan. I remember we used to, this is the way that, um, I think it was Gilman, Neil Gilman, Shalom, used to present the, the idea of the sanctuary. You know, it's, it's a replication of the desert experience. We're, we're, we're using that kind of language when we create our sacred spaces. And Jeremy, you're doing that now in your building, right? Well, by the way, everything in our work that was not going to be in the, the uh, it's going to be about the entrance and accessibility to the davening space, but we're not doing it in the davening space. Yeah. But, you know, I was going to say one thing about the colors, which I think is really significant. Techelet um, v'argaman, you know, tolat shani, you have you have crimson and purple and and all of these different threads and I think that the variety is supposed to be a kind of a brilliant um, you know kind of dazzle you a little bit and I just want to say on as Purim is coming up um, in contrast there's a there's a really interesting sharp contrast all of this stuff 
from the marble and the alabaster and the gold and the silver is also described in Achishverosh's palace. And I think that the, uh, I had last night, we at the show had a program with our neighboring Orthodox synagogue. We talked about a very close relationship between, they're a very liberal place. And we got, in fact, a lot of people who are members of both. And, um, and the rabbi there, uh, Aviad Bodner, made this, the following point is that there is like very vivid description of Achishverosh's palace and it doesn't mean anything. It's just a party palace. And in contrast, the, uh, Mishkan that we're building is 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 the you know the dazzling beauty, but with content and with a purpose at the center of which is the Luchot Ha'edut, the, the 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 tablets that are all about you know I am the Lord and and uh, no idols and keep Shabbos and don't kill anybody. Right. Well, maybe that's a, that's a good segue into into the parsha Zachor. We'll we'll leave Truma for a second because we know that this this week is also. Uh, the second of the special parshiot, the four parshiot before um, uh, Pesach. We had Shabbat Shkalim last week. We really didn't talk about Shkalim. We got Zachor coming up now. Uh, and um, this parsha gets its name, Zachor, because of the passage in Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. Zachor et asher asa lecha amalek. Remember what Amalek did to you. And of course, we read about that a couple of weeks ago. Just can you refresh our narrative for us? Barry, go ahead. So as the children of Israel make their way through the wilderness, they are marching um, as befits a, a large group of people, and they are attacked in the rear where the women and children are by Amalek. And Moses sends out the warriors to fight, led by Joshua, and he is on a hill with his arms propped up by his nephew Hur and his brother Aaron. And the way the story goes is while his arms are risen, the Israelites are victorious, and when they fall, then the Amalekites are able to be triumphant. But as the story ends, of course, the Israelites are triumphant, and uh, certainly a cursory reading makes one wonder whether there are any Amalekites left, but the story is carried forward because there's a mention here of this command to eliminate Amalek when there is time to do that. And that is what we're going to read on um, Shabbat morning as a maftir, the command to remember to destroy Amalek as soon as you get peace in the land. So, By the way, it's, it's proof that they did play football back in, in biblical times because that's what Moses does. He says touchdown, and that's when they win. Well, it's an issue. I once read an article on this that he was actually making military signals to them, that you know, you know, <laughs> and signals to them, which is was an interesting take on this. But to what extent does this mitzvah and zahor really captivate us? I, I, I would even go into are there any moral difficulties? in this uh, particular mitzvah? Well, uh, I mean, genocide is hard to make a moral case for. <laughs> okay. Um, Not impossible. So that, that's the major difficulty. Also, it's hard to understand why Amalek becomes this great enemy of the Israelites. Um, one might have thought that Egypt, which had enslaved our ancestors for 400 years, um, might have merited the top honor. 
Of course, Amalek is small enough where you could actually wipe them out. Um, but what I suggested before we started recording is that there seems also to be a Zionist narrative here, that Amalek is the people that oppress us when we're not in our land. And they attack the weak because we are existentially weak when we're not in the land of Israel. It's interesting, we're going to read the Maftir um, this Shabbat. On poor morning, we're going to read the story of... Uh, we're going to read the, the battle itself from Sefer Shmod, but on Purim in the Megillah, Haman is linked to the king of Amalek, Agag. Or, yeah. yeah. He is linked to the king of Amalek, Agag, as if he were a descendant, even though the reading of Samuel doesn't admit of any male survivors so that Haman could be a descendant. But again, you know, we often don't stress enough that Purim is really a Galut story. It's not a story of the land of Israel. I think, by the way, that the, 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 uh, the Agag and Saul and Mordechai and Haman is not, is not forced. I think it's actually organic to the text because um, Mordechai is described as Ishimini, as, as Shaul is also of Binyamin. And so I do think that the, the Megillah is matching those, uh, those as, a, as a pair. Um, I, uh, I I think that the picking of Amalek is is really interesting that they are you know portrayed as that they attacked the weak and the stragglers and and that's really um, just morally reprehensible. They were like vicious for the sake of viciousness. Uh, and, and yes, of course, it says you know lo titaev mitzri kiger ha'ita beratzo. And Deuteronomy says, don't hate the Egyptians. They hosted you for a good long while before they turned on you. So you have to be gra- grateful for the the good times. Um, but the Egyptians also preyed on the weak. They threw babies in the river for crying out loud. So it's not the Egyptians who are nice. Well, but, the baby didn't cry out loud. That's why Moses was able to be rescued. <laughs> but Amalek is portrayed as, as not just, you know, one, one you know, bad, bad people among plenty of bad people. Uh, but they, they acquire a kind of uh, unique, you know, status. And there's a, an interesting... Um, you know, feature in Maimonides, Hilchot uh, Melachim, sort of the laws of kings and politics and everything. He he talks about the commandments to wipe out the seven nations of Canaan, and then says, "But uh, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, Allah Sancherib will be bel haumot. Sancherib came and scrambled up all the people, so there aren't any more Girgashites to worry about." Uh, and then the next paragraph is Amalek. You always have to fight Amalek. And he does, Maimonides does not say, but Allah Sancherib will be Bel Haumot. He came and, and scrambled up all the people so there are no more Amalekites. And uh, Salvechik uh, goes on a, um, I, I don't remember exactly if this is in, I don't actually know where this is, but I, uh, I I know I have seen it before in the name of, uh, uh, written in the writings of Riyasi Salvechik that there is a distinction to be made between the Girgashites and the various kinds of ites. Um, that, that was a, a battle to be fought by Joshua and the conquest of the original, you know, the original entrance of the people to the land. But Amalek means something about their behavior and therefore that mitzvah doesn't lapse. And I, you know, I have to say, of course, um, uh, I don't think that Jews should get themselves into an ethnic lather about always everybody's our enemies. We have to kill all of our enemies and everything. 
I think that's a terrible mistake. And I think of course, as, as you said before, uh, you, you can't really make a case for why wipe them all out is, is an appropriate response. But there's like, there's Amalek in the world. And, and you know, we're still in the shadow of the Shoah. I mean, Elliot literally still has a member um, yeah. who was in Auschwitz. You know? Maybe the link we could have with the Amalekites or with the other people that were completely wiped out, which are the, the Anshay Sodom and Gemara, that those are people that have to be destroyed. They're destroyed by God, though, not by human beings, because they are utterly evil. And the, the so-called bargaining of uh, God and Abraham, I think, is actually to make sure that Abraham understands that they are so evil that they do merit being destroyed and that maybe Amalek is kind of a, akin to them. Look, it's, it's so difficult not to superimpose or to layer onto this narrative our, our experience and the experience of Jewish history, which identifies Amalek midor door, that it's a generational conflict, that there's, there's always going to be anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism itself trend is able to mutate in every single generation and and of course you know we 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 can go into great depth on the different kinds of mutations even the anti-zionism mutation that we we would we could argue is certainly anti-semitism today and that that there's a sensitivity to this and that the torah itself is presenting the the conflict which is, yeah, wipe them out, but also understand that this is an eternal conflict, that you can never wipe them out, that as long as there are Jews, there are going to be those who hate Jews until we live in a totally redeemed world. We can this, put this, in this, 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 is, this, is, this is the great paradox and the, the beautiful depth of this, of this mitzvah that you have to read Parshat Zachor, Okay, that is, a, it, it's actually, it's the only section of the Torah, or perhaps para as well, um, but it's the only section of the Torah that it is itself a commandment to read. It's part of the, the commandment to remember Amalek, to not forget. And the very fact that you always have to read it means that the mitzvah is always going to be, you know, you, you can't forget because you have to keep reading it. So you will never have succeeded in blotting out their memory. So there's a Pesach tidbit here. In the Haggadah, we say, in every generation, people come to destroy us. But curiously, in the Haggadah, we don't mention Amalek. And so I think that the trope is there, that there are there is real evil in the world that has to be combated, and we have to be vigilant, and we cannot back away from it. On the other hand, we can't get carried away by thinking that people that we dislike for any number of reasons are actually evil and they must be destroyed because that also is not part of the world we live in. Can we take a moment to, to talk about the Haftarah for Zahor, which is this extraordinarily beautiful, rich narrative of King Saul and, and the prophet Samuel. Samuel uh, instructs Saul to, to finish off Amalek and, and Saul in a moment of Rahmanus on another king lets Agag live and Samuel goes berserk. Samuel is, goes out of his mind here. And, and this is where the conflict between the two of them finally erupts. Uh, pick up any, any piece of that narrative you want to talk about in two seconds. Jeremy, you want to give me some? Oh, there's so much. It, it, just, just today I was at uh, 
I was at um, the grave of Yochanan Mufs, a great, uh, a great Bible scholar, and um, and Yochanan talks about uh, God. Shmuel goes berserk. God also goes berserk from before the Haftarah starts. Um, that, uh, or maybe it's in the Haftarah. It may be in the Haftarah. That that Shmuel implores God all night long to 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 forgive Saul, but that God doesn't. And then Shmuel says, "Okay." You know, we, we gotta go. We gotta go get us. We gotta go. God says we gotta go get us a new king, and then turns towards turns towards David. Shmuel, uh, Saul rips Shmuel's garment. Yeah. Oh, the the garment, the kingdom is ripped for you. As right, let me quote that first. Vayisov Shmuel alechet. After their confrontation, Shmuel turns around. Vayichazek b'knaf milo vayikarea. Vayikara. I'm sorry. He turns around and, and he tears it. Saul tears it, and then. God has torn the kingdom from you. Uh, but it's so, it's so, um, I mean, it is, it, it is uh, terribly distressing that, I mean, this is, this is one of the images of God that we have in the Torah, in the Tanakh, that there's just no forgiveness for this kind of disobedience. And, and I, I just, uh, it's no chidush to say. I know the forgiving God, and I know the uh, the God who. Well, okay, so there's some things that that just can't be forgiven. You know, the second, the you know, lotisat shemen. That commandment can't be forgiven either. You you destroy God's reputation in the world. Okay, you know, the, the, it's a long machloket here in terms of you know is this excessive? But but I guess I'm I'm you know I'm focused on the pathos here. Rather, wait a lot. You got out for a second. This, the pathos between two two men, two individuals, you know. There are two men who have different accesses to God. Yes. Samuel is a Navi, and Saul is the king. And we often forget, you know, we consider ourselves as descendants of the prophets, but in ancient Israel, the priest and the king had a claim to God's word, also as well as the Navi. It wasn't that the Navi was the prime minister, as it were. He was one of three who had access to God. And here it's clear in the story that it's a victory for the prophet and not for the king. The king listens to the people, at least in the rendition here. They, it's the people as well who have mercy on, on the king and on the crops. And then when Saul is backing down, he says, I was led astray by the people. Yeah. And that is a normal reaction. And I think given the events that have taken place in this country in the last several months, there is an object lesson here for how people are supposed to behave and what authority is supposed to vest us with and how we're supposed to respond to authority that goes beyond the pale. That's a great observation. And Shaul is portrayed as having listened to the people. He doesn't lead them um, and and they are perhaps as, as Elliot said he's uh, the Shaul's chas al kavodoshel agag that he's worried about his fellow king, but the people seem to want the animals, okay, and and that's kind of the greediness. But Shaul's weakness is portrayed that he didn't lead the people; he followed the people. And we can exactly as you said, uh, there's we can think of lots of politicians whose main whose main motivation is not to irk their. <laughs> They're people who might uh, send them home. So again, the pathos, you know, in reading this and listening to it is, 
is not only you know the the relationship between you know Amalek and the Zachor. It's it's severance, the severance of two of this relationship. This is it's irreparable. You know the 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 text really tells you all you need to know at the at the end by Shasif Shmuel Adagagi. By Shasif is such a rare word. He just lops off his head. By Yelich Shmuel Haramata, Shmuel goes back to Ramah. The Shaul Allah be about Shaul. And Shmuel goes back, and it's like they're never going to see each other again. Except, well, it's it's over. That relationship is over. But then we got a camp. Re- we got a camp reference in there. Exactly. Ramah. It goes back to Ramah. <laughs> Absolutely, it goes back to Ramah, which we all hope that people could go back to anyway. Look, this the the, the parsha leaves us with with the the celebration of Jewish space and the celebration of aesthetics and the relationship. Uh, the Haftarah, the part, the special part, as a takes us into Jewish history and to themes that are very, very profound, difficult, complicated. The Haftarah takes us into another relationship, uh, and and it's just going to be a, a a Shabbat of all of these textual richness riches for us. We've come to the conclusion of our time, so we want to wish everyone a, a wonderful Shabbat. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. We enjoy your comments. We really appreciate your time. And we love sharing Torah with you. We'll see you again soon next week. Have a wonderful Purim. Purim is Thursday evening. Enjoy it. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.